My name is Dr. Lindsay Wisner. I'm a psychologist, author, a mom, and still an occasional shit show. You're listening to the Neurotic Nourishment Podcast. This is a place for smart, sweary women to talk about stuff that matters, stuff that can make us uncomfortable, but stuff that helps us to learn and grow and be okay with living in that discomfort of not knowing the right thing to say or do all the time. Thanks for listening. You can also find me on Instagram at psychshrinkmom or at neuroticnourishment. Season 3, Episode 8. Doug Knoll spent 22 years as a trial attorney before getting his master's degree in mediation and then accidentally stumbling into an opportunity to make a real difference in the California prison system. Doug is the co-founder of Prison of Peace, where they train murderers in maximum security prisons on how to be peacemakers and mediators in their prison communities. You can immediately understand why I was drawn to talk to Doug. Doug has also written four books. His latest was released on September 12th, 2017, and it's titled De-Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. He is also the creator of online video courses in legal negotiation and emotional de-escalation and has conducted dozens of webinars. His video offerings on YouTube have garnered over 87,000 views. You can find Doug on Twitter and on Facebook, on Twitter, he's Doug Knoll, N-O-L-L. On Facebook, he's Douglas Knoll. And on his website, DougKnoll.com. The link to his YouTube channel is also located in the show notes. Okay, I am with Doug Knoll. And you just said the most ridiculous thing ever. You said, I'm an everyman, okay? I'm going to read you guys something. <laughs> That's at the end of Doug's little podcast, you know, podcaster bio. Um, Mr. Knoll has written four books. His latest released on September 12, 2007, entitled De-Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. He is the creator of online video courses in legal negotiation and emotional de-escalation and has conducted dozens of webinars. His video offerings on YouTube have garnered over 87,000 views. On a personal note, Doug's super lazy. He's a jazz violinist, an aircraft and helicopter pilot, a ski instructor, a second degree black belt, a Tai Chi master, and a whitewater rafter. You are lazy. I mean, you're an everyman. What everyman would you possibly be? Your accomplishments are amazing and you make me feel well, lazy. <laughs> yeah. First of all, I'm 70 years old, so I've been living for a while. You know, if you work at it, you, you can actually get things done. And that's what I've learned, how to get things done, how to learn stuff. And you choose, you choose yeah. your battles carefully. Like I would never take up golf. I would, that's the farthest thing from my mind. But uh, because, and I don't watch television. So uh, you yeah. make it, I haven't owned a television in 30 years. I so, think it's the television. You probably don't own, you don't, you don't use TikTok either, huh? No. Good, that's a huge time set. And, and I leave my phone in my office. Wow. I mean, I, we, my wife and I work, we have 10 acres in the central Sierra Nevada, beautiful place. I never, I never go any, I, I leave my phone in my office unless I'm getting my car to drive somewhere and then I'll take my phone with me, but I do not 
my phone does not command me. I command my phone. Don't ever text me. I'll never answer. I am amazed. And that's okay. Don't ever call me because then I think you're a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> you is, can call me and leave a voicemail. That's great. Email works really well too. But I, Email I, is perfect. Yeah. I will not do text. I barely tolerate WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger. I totally understand. I only, um, my issue with text is I'll do, I'll get to it when I get to it. You know, I also, my patients are free to text me 24 hours a day. My sound's never on. It's never going to interrupt my sleep. And if it's important and they need to get something off their chest, I, I don't mind because I pick it up when I'm ready. What I don't understand is when you're texting and someone ends it, like it's a phone conversation, <laughs> like, uh, so I got to go, oh, just go. This is yeah. I'm not tethered to you, um, no. um, but you are extremely impressive and um, there is so much I want to know um, and I don't even know where to start, but I'm going to find somewhere. So your last book. Um, Deescalate. Yes. 2017. Um, that, 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 that's been a, it's in four languages now. It's done really well. That's amazing. Um, what, I guess, what made you get into this because this is sort of your so you also what um, found you're the co-founder of prison of peace where you train murderers in maximum security prisons how to be peacemakers and mediators in their prison communities i'm fascinated with this because by this i guess i don't speak better once i press record <laughs> <laughs> um i am fascinated this because i you know i do it when you look at old cases from um like uh, old crimes from the 80s and you know uh 50s like which is what part of what I do for the crimes of Long Island podcast my other podcast um these people are out now some of them and you get to see what they become and um you know there was this 17 year old his name was Fred McManus and he went on this like crime spree killed like five people in all these different states and while he's in prison, he becomes a criminal psychologist. And the next thing you know, he's out and newspapers are citing him as a criminal psychologist. Like, never mind the whole prison thing, but like, I don't know, you know, I, I, I can see how impulsivity at 17, I never murdered anyone, but you know, um, and there, it's, it's like there is something to be done. There's also a program, uh, Hudson Link for Higher Education in Prison, where I've seen, you know, people um, who've committed crimes, they come in and then they come out and they're the executive director or they're, you know, it, it's like if you give some of them, even murderers, if you give them an opportunity, some of them can change. All of them can change. Well, 99% of them can change. 1% can't probably. Right. Um, we can all change. What, and this is what something that people don't realize is that our prison system is our largest mental health institution. Yeah. And, and, and crime, is, crime is not crime. I mean, I, I got a little radicalized about this. First of all, as you know, but your audience doesn't know, I was a trial lawyer for 22 years and a, I'm a law professor. I didn't have anything to do with the criminal system until we co-founded the Prison of Peace Project in 2010. And uh, I have seen with my own eyes amazing transformations. We have had, we've had over 4,000 of our students released, many of them lifers and long-termers. Many of them have killed people. Not one report of recidivism, no reoffending from any of our students. 
Which is amazing, but if you think about it, if you give them skills that they didn't have and you, you show them that they can do better, they're not stuck in that. It, it, it seems astounding that we would have that kind of a track record, but it's not. It's simply proof that if we're willing to invest in human beings that have made terrible decisions and terrible mistakes and have harmed other people, we can rehabilitate them and they can become thriving members of the community. In fact, every single one of our released students is that and we have eight of them that we've hired back into our program to be trainers which is fantastic and they're going back into prison as soon as it reopens probably next year 2022 they're, um they're going back they'll be going back in and training the people that they lived with for 20 or 30 years i think that's incredible i really do think that work within the prison is so i'm married to a psychologist who used to be a public defender um and you know um i I like to say- You got uh, two doctorates? Yes, he has two doctorates. Uh, I know. I it? only have an MA. I've got, a, I've got my JD and my MA. Well- I, mean, I was gonna go for BC, but then I started interviewing schools here on the West Coast that, and I realized I'd be end up teaching all the classes. That's right. stuff that was interesting. So I said, screw it, it's not worth it. Well, I mean, I did my yoga teacher training over COVID. Does that make me any more impressive? No. Okay, I didn't think so. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I am married to a very smart man, and um, he was so smart that he married me. So there you go. Um, but um, but so I like to say I I I dated a lot of lawyers, so I must have picked up on some legal stuff. But also with my um, experience with um, my mother, as I shared earlier, like the mental health system is broken, you know. Okay. And it's, there is no mental health system. I mean, uh, there it, it was killed by Reagan. Well, I only remember Reagan teaching us all how to get more drugs because he actually just, the D.A.R.E. program just taught all the suburban, suburban kids what to ask right. for. So that's all I remember, but- um, Yeah, he completely demolished the whole community-based uh, funding for state hospitals and all that stuff. Not that, not that there weren't a lot of abuses, there were, but he completely cut all federal funding for that. And then he promised that he would come get Congress to fund community-based mental health initiatives. And of course he never did. And so that's why we have a huge homeless population that we have today. And that's why we have the huge prison population we have today, because we don't have anywhere else to put people either on the street or in prison. That's it. Yeah. I mean, uh, mental health facilities will only hold 72 hours. And then unless you literally have a, a knife to your throat there, you know, right. um, right. or unless you can afford private care. Um, right. And good. even then, it's, it's either voluntary or... That's right. Yeah. So, you know, that I mean, these are fundamental issues that politicians don't want to address because they're too difficult. They're too complex. And voters don't want to hear about it because it's too painful to think about. And it's expensive. Yeah. Although I will say that California did a study that showed that for every dollar they spent, the, the prison system or the state spent on rehabilitation in prison, it saved $1,000. Wow. But even after that report came out, we, California only spends less than 1% of the total prison budget, which is around 18 to $20 billion a year, more than we spend on our university system um, on rehabilitation. So what do they spend it on? Defending lawsuits and paying ridiculously high salaries to union members. Gotcha. Um, I mean, I, I also think that maybe if there was more of a mental health system in the prison, obviously that would be... They try to, you know, they, they deal with it, you know, I, I mean, they're, and, you know, 
when they have people who are really dysfunctional, they got to segregate them and they do the best they can, but they're not designed. They're not designed for that sort of stuff. No, but I meant by more access to more psychologists, psychiatrists. You, know, you would think, although, although, you know, I mean, prisons do employ a lot of psychologists, but frankly, I haven't been impressed with the ones I've met. Well, uh, it's probably, I mean, I understand. And, you know, it's, um, I haven't been impressed with the psychiatrists I've met in inpatient facilities either because it's they're they're overworked and you know not paid as well as you would think and so yeah, um, it's tough to recruit good people. Right. Who wants to work in a prison? I do not personally. Now I, I kind of do. Yeah, in California, the 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 prison, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation is the largest uh, employer of of uh, GEDs in the state. I mean, which is, listen, at least there's somewhere to work, but, um, you know, I, uh, it's, it's sad. And I know that it's, I don't buy into this whole pension thing as being like, you know, the end all and be all because it's just like a dangling fish. And, but then again, I, I don't work for money. I work for love. I mean, I still take insurance like a schmuck, you know, and like if someone, when someone, my patients who lost their jobs or lost their insurance in the pandemic, okay, pay me 20 bucks, you know, what's right. when right. you can. Um, well, and here's the thing that I've learned that um, we can get all worked up over these big social issues and policy issues and nothing ever, nothing does changes. However, we can work at our own level in our own way and may, and be the instigators of huge transformative change. And that's what the prison project turned out to be. It never started out as a big deal. It started out as an experiment. Well, I mean, it started I, out with some dis decent funding. No, we did not get one dime for the really? first nine years. We oh, ran okay. totally pro bono, paid for everything out of our own pockets, almost went completely broke, both of us. We're both professional mediators, both professors of law, uh, adjuncts, so we're not even full-time professors. and. Um, it was a labor of love for many. We almost threw in the towel two or three times and it was intensive grinding work, not easy. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, oh. mis I'm misrecalling because I know at some point there was you know, a large grant given. We started getting funding. We got some small grants along the way, but in 2017, we got our first large grant wow. from the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. And then in 2019, we got a big grant from the Singer Family Foundation in Connecticut to start prison of peace up in Connecticut. And so we got a project, we had a project going there. Of course, everything shut down because of the pandemic. So well, it's only in the last four years that we've had any money at all. And uh, even then, since we're hiring people, hiring trainers, and we spread that money very thin, and Doug certainly doesn't get a his, I make way below minimum wage. Listen, <laughs> I want you to have money. I want this project to, you know, I mean, I, I'm curious how it came about because, again, this, it sounds like it was, this was not your, I don't get the, the impression that your, your, um, that prison was like your goal or rather more where you saw the problem. So just, just very briefly, well, let me just kind of tell you, give you my life story and the Reader's Digest version, and that'll lead to the prison project. I, I grew up in Southern California uh, in affluence. I was born with a lot of disabilities. I was born deaf, blind, crippled, couldn't walk until I was three. And even then they said I'd never be able to run or do anything. I had, my vision was 
2400, so I was legally blind. They didn't figure out that I had bad eyes until the fourth grade. Then somebody tested me, and they held me back a year because I was they I was doing wasn't doing well academically. So they thought, and then of course, as soon as I got glasses, big thick Coke bottle glasses with the I mean I was a buzzkill for the girls. Let me tell you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, well you've outgrown that, so fine, good for you. And I've okay, seen your well, wife; anyways, she's beautiful. Anyways, so, yeah, yeah. I pretty pretty much sucked when I grew up. But uh, I leaped ahead like three grade levels in a summer. Wow. And because I was born with some intelligence. So anyways, ended up going to Dartmouth College, graduated from Dartmouth, came back to California, went to law school. It's not a bad college. No, not a bad college. Uh, and ended up clerking for a judge for a year and then went into private practice and the firm groomed me to be a trial lawyer. And I joined that firm in September of 1978 and tried my first jury trial, civil jury trial in November of 1978. And that's how it all started. So for the next 22 years, I tried cases. I was a child dog. And then through a series of events that were sort of interesting and totally tangential to the law, I ended up uh, deciding in the late 90s to make a career shift. And I went back to school to get my master's degree in peacemaking and complex studies and left the practice of law wow. in 2000 to start my mediation and peacemaking practice. And then I discovered, again, not to make a very long story very short, I discovered a, a really powerful set of tools that I just discovered by happenstance, uh, mostly through my study of neuroscience and the neuroscience of emotion and uh, developed this really radical way to calm people down. So uh, after the financial collapse of 2008, it basically wiped out my mediation practice because the Central California went into a deep economic depression. And so then the magic phone call happened on August, in August of 2009. And Laurel Copper, who was a dear friend of mine and a mediator in Los Angeles, about four, four and a half hours south from where I live, called me and read me this letter. And the letter was from a woman by the name of Susan Russo, who was serving a life sentence without possibility of parole. Hmm. She was convicted of conspiracy to murder her husband. Okay. Long story about that, but which we won't go into. But she basically was writing mediators around the state, seeing if somebody would be willing to come in and teach the lifers in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world at that time, Valley State Prison for Women, to train them to be mediators and peacemakers so they could stop the violence because the guards weren't doing a very good job of it. In fact, the guards were instigating violence. So Laurel read the letter to me because I live about an hour and 15 minutes from the prison and said, what do you think? And I thought about it for about a nanosecond. Yeah. I wallowed because I kind of felt, well, this might be a big deal. Might not be anything. I said, I think we, I think we should do this. And she agreed. So we, we did our due diligence, found out that Sue was the real deal. And then uh, started the long, arduous process of getting permission to try this program out. And finally, in April of 2010, we got the go-ahead. You know, in in uh, March of 2010, we got the go-ahead. And in April of 2010, we started training our first 15 women, all lifers and long-termers, and never looked back. It was amazing. I mean, what we what happened was just incredible. Our basic curriculum has remained essentially the same over the last 10 years. It's improved. But basically, as mediation trainers and law professors teaching mediation skills and negotiation skills, we recognize that people in prison, especially people who are serving life sentences, probably lacked some basic skills. I would agree. Yes. 
So we started, we assumed every, every one of our incarcerated students had zero skills. So we start them off by teaching them restorative justice. And then uh, we spend- Restorative justice meaning? Okay, so restorative justice is a philosophy that uh, is very different than retributive justice. And in restorative justice, the whole goal is for healing and accountability between the victim, the offender, and the communities that have been affected by crime. I was trained by the guys who basically invented restorative justice in my master's degree program. So I'm deeply schooled both academically and practically in the practice of restorative justice and the theory behind it. So we decided that we would base our program on the philosophy of restorative justice, even though we were not, it, this was not going to be a restorative justice program. We weren't bringing victims and offenders together to talk about the crime. Um, so basically the course boils down to teaching the philosophy, teaching in four levels of reflective listening. Uh, and then today we teach our students how to convene and conduct peace circles as their first peacemaking process. Then they go on, once they, they become a circle keeper, then we take them through the Peacemaker 1 and Peacemaker 2 workshops, which are very advanced skill building and theoretical classes. And neuro, I spend two hours in one class just going through neuro, the neuroscience of emotions and how to manage strong emotions and how to de-escalate. And then finally, when they get through all of that, which is rigorous, I mean, we hold them to the same standards we hold our graduate students. Sure. Um, they go into a three-day mediation class and we train them in what's known as interspace mediation, which any mediator who's taken a community mediation class would be very familiar with the process we teach. And then they, they go out and they have to do practical work under our supervision and, and then ultimately we certify them. And it takes about a year now for one of our students to get certified as a mediator. And then if they wanna go on to become a trainer, which is we try to build training cadres in every prison to make them self-sustaining. Yeah. It takes another two years of training before they become a fully certified prison and peace trainer. And as I said, we've had about 4,000 of our students released from prison, uh, many of them lifers, and zero reports of recidivism. Which Man, is amazing. I mean, listen, what you said, I think, is very, I'm sure that um, people familiar with mediation understand exactly what you said. Um, but, um, you know, some of this is new to me, some of this not. I mean, right. you specifically said, um, uh, you had mentioned earlier something about teaching people how to listen others four levels, the four levels of reflective listening right right so what what does that can you say more about that sure so uh there are four levels of reflective listening <laughs> i have figured i'm to give you the talk it's so, okay give it to me. the four levels are mirroring paraphrasing core messaging and affect labeling everybody's learned about mirroring that's where you repeat backward for what another person says you never use mirroring to calm somebody down the only time you're gonna use mirroring is when you've gotta be on the same page with your speaker and you both have to understand a process, an algorithm, a list, or a set of rules, whatever it is, you just, it's a, re, it's a read back. Yeah. And, and for example, as an aircraft pilot, we use mirroring all the time. The air traffic control gives me instruction, I've gotta read it back. I'm basically sure. mirroring back what the air, tra air traffic control told me to do. So there's clarity, it's called a read back. So that's mirroring. And the paraphrasing, everybody's learned paraphrasing, but, but our twist is when you are paraphrasing core messaging and affect labeling, you never use an I statement. Interesting. Always a you statement. And this flies in the face of, of let's see, Thomas Gordon, Thomas Gordon invented active listening in, 19, in the late 1960s. So this is going back um, 60 years. 
Gordon was wrong, as it turns out. Uh, but, example. but the self-help movement, the human potential movement, and the social uh, and social movement and the therapy movement all picked up on his use of I statements. Totally wrong. No science to support it. Zero science to support it, and it doesn't work. Okay, so give me an example of an I statement. Well, what I think, what I hear you, what, what I hear you saying is X, or yeah. what I think you're feeling is Y. Yeah, that pisses me off, honestly. <laughs> it, it does, and it's but it's taught it's taught universally, and it's taught not only taught to mediators, it's also taught to therapists. It's and, part of the Gottman method. It's a, it's like the couples therapy method. It's like one of the most well known. Yeah. So so I stumbled on a way of listing using you statements, which which was an amazing discovery and a very difficult mediation I had in two thousand five. But anyways, to get back to the four levels of reflective listening, paraphrasing, of course, is just restating the words of the speaker in your own words. Core messaging is where wait, we start. Wait, I'm still on paraphrasing. So give me an example. All right. So supposing you say, um, uh, I went outside today and the sun was shining and you know I took a beautiful walk. And I said, you had a really wonderful day with the sun shining down on your head today. That's paraphrasing. Perfect. Just restating what they're saying, focusing on the words, nothing else. Okay. Core messaging is where we begin to ignore the words. Core, if, if we've all had conversations with people who go on and on and on and on and on and on and on, and they go on and 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 on, and you just wonder what is going on here. Well, these people are doing all their thinking outside, and so they're talking through their thinking verbally. And if you're the listener, it can drive you crazy. So what we teach people to do is to core message, search for the meaning that the speaker is trying to convey and then reflect that meaning with the metaphor. And usually if you get it right, you'll stop the wandering around. They'll say, oh my God, that's amazing. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. How come it took me 20 minutes to say that and you figured it out in two seconds? You know what else helps with that? ADHD medication, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, and then the last level of reflective listening, which is the deepest and the level that most people have never learned uh, is what, and it's what I discovered and what I teach is called affect labeling or reflecting emotions. And in, in this level, you, um, as a listener, you ignore the words. You don't ignore the person, you just ignore the words. The words just become noise. You read their emotions, and you reflect back their emotions with a you statement. So I would say, Lindsay, you're really angry. Oh, Lindsay, you're so pissed off. You're so frustrated. Nobody ever listens to you. You feel completely unappreciated. You feel like you've been completely betrayed and jerked around. It's making you kind of anxious. And you're a little sad because you thought those people would be better than that. And you're feeling a little abandoned and a little unloved. Sure, and then the person feels understood. What happens is the magic happens in the brain. It's much deeper than understood. What Lieberman, Matthew Lieberman and his, his uh, team did at UCLA in 2007 is published a brain scanning study that showed that when you engage in this kind of practice, it's called a form of implicit emotional regulation, that the prefrontal cortex, the ventral medial prefrontal cortex activates at the same time that the amygdala and other related limbic system regions of the brain deactivate or are inhibited. So it's, this, it's a process of one activates while the other inhibits and it's the reciprocal. Right, so your fight, uh, and fight or flight response decreases. Yeah, it goes away. 
Yep. And it happens automatically. It's all unconscious. So you can literally de-escalate an angry person in 30 to 45 seconds. Right. And if you're activating the prefrontal cortex, you're also sort of tapping into the executive function, the planning. You're getting a little, you're, they're getting their impulse control back. But what's really going on, I don't know how deeply you want to get into this, what's really going on is that when we are, as we lend our, as the listener, we lend our prefrontal cortex to the speaker who's really upset. We allow the speaker's prefrontal cortex to access the emotional database that we all have. And once the prefrontal cortex can reactivate and grab the emotional database and the speaker can start articulating what he or she is actually experiencing emotionally, that's when things start to calm down. And that's what Lieberman showed in his scanning studies, how that works. So very, very powerful. So you're, so how is that different? Cause I, my thought process was that you were, um, you know, decreasing fight, fight or flight, you're increasing the, the individual's prefrontal cortex. But we're saying in some ways we're, we're accessing it, but in a way that allows them to tap process. into powers. They can process their own emotions more, more, more efficiently. When people are really upset, they can't process the emotional it. centers of the brain, the neural circuits are completely overwhelming their prefrontal cortex. Sure. So they, can't, they can't think, right? You've seen this many times as a psychologist. They yeah. simply can't think. And because they can't think, all they can rely on is basically childhood programming, which is highly reactive right. and, and can be violent because they have no way of processing their emotion and making choices because that part of the brain is completely shut down. Right, the cortisol is released, the adrenaline is yeah, released. all that stuff happens. Your memory, right. all that stuff happens. And so all they're going stuff. back to exactly. literally a primal way or that's childhood right. way. That's right. Yeah. that's right. So when you affect label them, that, that whole process stops. They go into a relaxation response. And this is all happening unconsciously. They don't even know you're doing it. That's what's so amazing. And that's why it works every time. Yeah, we do this with my kids too. <laughs> you, it, let me tell you. I didn't know there was a name. How old are your kids? Uh, 10 and almost 13. It'll work. Yeah. It'll, yeah. A little practice. Well, no, uh, we've been doing practice. it since they were little. Um, my husband's a really good dad. So, you know. Oh, that's good. That's great. Um, but, yeah, um, I, but yeah, I've seen it. I taught this at a, I you know, I, I do workshops in this obviously. And, and so I did a, my first in-person workshop in two years, about three, four weeks ago. And we had a check-in the last week and two of the, two of the guys that were in the workshop have five-year-old boys. And they both were just went on and on and on about how they were affect labeling their five-year-olds and the boys completely transformed and changed. And now yeah. they're affect labeling themselves and they, are, they don't have temper tantrums anymore. And they're, they are able to control. This is after three weeks of practice. I mean, it completely, it's, I, I cannot overstate how powerful this is. But anyway, so, so the fourth level of affect labeling, or the fourth level of reflective listening is listening to and reflecting emotions or what we call affect labeling. Right. We teach that at the very beginning in Prison of Peace because these become the foundational skills upon which the rest of the curriculum is based. And until you can listen, you can't do anything else. That's just true. And the, the stories that I've heard about how these skills, these basic listening skills have completely changed lives. Unbelievable, unbelievable stories. And um, I mean, I'll just tell you one really quickly. So we were, we were about five weeks into training, six weeks into training and in the women's prison, our first cohort, first women we were training. 
and walked in and one of our women was in there and she was crying in the corner sobbing and Laurel walked up to her and said what's going on and she said you know I I've been in prison for 18 years I killed a family of four in an automobile accident because I was a drunk driver I was an alcoholic and I came away without a scratch and I had to give up my three-year-old boy to my sister to raise I've written him a letter every every week mm. for the past 18 years never heard from him and two weeks ago, I decided to write a different kind of letter. I decided to ethic label him the way you've been teaching us. And today I got a, my first letter in 18 years from him. Wow. And he was really angry and he had a right to be. But at the end, he said, mom, I'm going to bring my girlfriend and we're going to come visit and I love you. That's amazing and so powerful. And also it's, it's there's something else there about the communication with between people because, I mean, she must have had no idea if he was opening these letters. I mean, people have, we don't listen. We've never been trained how to listen. We don't certainly don't know, learn how to listen in our families. 96% of all families are dysfunctional. And all they do is churn out dysfunctional adults who create more dysfunctional families. And so Family, you're not going to learn how to listen to people in a, in a dysfunctional family. It's just not going to happen. And it, it's not taught in school, of course. It's just not taught anywhere. No, it's not. And, and our, our listening skills or our hearing skills are very poor because we only model as kids what we learn and what we learn is bad. So this stuff is all radically new. And, and when you learn how to validate somebody, I call it listening them into existence, learning yeah. how to listen into existence when you learn how to do that you give this precious gift of validating the core of who a human being is and they are eternally grateful for you to you for what you've done and it doesn't matter whether i'm dealing with somebody in a level four maximum security prison or i've trained senior analysts at the congressional budget office how to do this to de-escalate members of congress it doesn't matter uh no it's extremely important you know my husband will often discuss validation and um you know uh, the, uh to me i don't want to validate you if i don't agree with you but this is a different type of type of validation which is about the person that you are or how you feel or a bigger picture and so good news you did a good thing for my marriage i think um but only because two psychologists could fight about anything for a very long time um but also no. not you know, if you could de-escalate it before it starts. My wife on a nerve fight. We've never Your had a wife is also like a super guru person though. I looked her up too. Yeah, but I mean, we're human beings, but no, we use these skills with each other and we have an amazing marriage. I mean, it is, it's my second marriage, her second. I never thought marriage could, you know, you hear about the fairy book marriages. That's what we've got. And it didn't happen just by accident. It happened because we really worked at it and we used these skills diligently. And uh, I absolutely believe you, but there's also a joke where like, um, if a woman's left, <laughs> like if, if you're the, her second husband, like, you know, full well to treat her well. So like, which is- Well, just, we treat each other well. I mean, yeah. we're to each other. It's not, you know, uh, a happy wife, happy life kind of thing. But, but no, that's, not, that's not what it is because Men who follow that oftentimes subjugate their own feelings and their own emotions, own, own needs, and they repress. And they're, they deep down inside, they're not very happy. They're not no, very they're happy. resentful because 
Sure. Yeah, so that is, does not exist in our marriage. No, I didn't mean to imply. It's just a, it's a little humor for like. I get it. Yeah. No, but, but, but I make the point because so many people are in unhappy marriages. And it's not, and but all you have to do is learn how to listen. Yeah. Your partner and listen them into existence and everything changes. It's, it sounds easy and yet it's, it takes effort and it takes restructuring of your brain. Well, the restructuring will happen automatically and the effort, I mean, it's easy to describe, ignore the words, read the emotion, reflect back the emotion with the use statement. That's it. That's it. That's it's that simple where the problem is, is that we have so many cultural biases against emotions. We have this bias of rationality, which is a myth that goes back more than 4,000 years that says that what makes us human is rationality. Not true. Totally, right. totally false. Uh, we, you can't think about that. You can't even have a rational thought unless you're emotional first. How can you even decide to, say, use critical thinking skills or logic? unless you were having an emotional reaction to an environment that posed, showed you that you had a problem that had to be solved. It's the emotions that tell us what's going on. And every decision we make is emotional and then we justify it. Well, hold on. It's the emotions that tell us what's going on, but we also agree that we, uh, we react emotionally often due to something from our past, some childhood. It can be all kinds of things. Sure, it can right. be memories. You know, it can be programming. It can be the environment. Sure, lots of things can trigger, trigger emotions. But the point that I'm making is that we are emotion, we're 98% emotional and only 2% rational. And this whole idea that we're rational beings is, is it's a myth. Yeah. And, and once we, once you get gain that insight, and the, then you begin to understand the importance of listening to and reflecting emotions, everything changes. I agree. No one's ever, no one's ever really won an argument with logic. And if you look at um like judges and prison sentences and you know all those things they're uh whether it be a jury or a judge you know they're largely based on emotions or well the, and the dip but the, there is a difference here and this is where rationality and critical thinking and legal like thinking is important and that is because we want to have accountability in our legal system we require judges to write out reason their reasoning why did you come to this decision yes the initial decision might be emotional but the judge has to provide reasoning as to how how the judge saw the law how the judge interpreted the law how the judge saw the facts how why the judge made the credibility determinations who was believable who was not and based on previous case law and what that's exactly and so and so then we can an appellate court can look at at a trial court decision and decide whether or not the judge made a good decision based on the judge's reasoning, even though the initial decision was probably emotional. Right, I agree. But also, you know, um, I think you can you can find case law that says just about anything. Well, not exactly. But people think 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 that's true, but it's really not true. Well, um, you know, you well, know there are there are there are a lot of gray areas. That's that's true, but but there aren't as many gray areas as people think. It's mostly always factually, cases are almost always factually dependent. They're not dependent on the law. I mean, I used to tell law students and young associates that I trained as trial lawyers that the law gets you into the courtroom, the facts get you your verdict. And so it's the facts that are important, not the law. Which is interesting given, I guess, how, changes in science and you know uh, 
DNA, you know, advances and all these other things where facts are changing in some way, you know? Oh yeah, I mean, neuroscience now say there's no such thing as free will, that we've made our decisions over 800 milliseconds before we're, we're even aware that we've made a decision. That's very interesting. How did that, how did we discover, how did oh, we there, prove that? There's amazing, there's been some amazing experiments done. And now of course it's turning, I mean, it's just created a, a, a maelstrom. Yeah. In the law and in the social sciences and in, 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 in a whole bunch of other sciences because, you know, the neuro, neuroscience is saying, look, here's the data, you know, yeah. we, we are deterministic machines. We are, we don't have free will. That's very interesting. I mean, I've been sucked into this neuro, um, not neuroscience, but like this neurology and brain, you know, mm -hmm. it's the brain. Um, I don't know. I get obsessed with things. And so that was my. So you can just do a, just do a Google. Sure. Do a Google scholar search for uh, neuroscience and free will. And you'll see hundreds, dozens and dozens of studies and everybody's arguing left and right. Even the neuroscientists. Some neuroscientists are just appalled that this could even be, and yet the science is pretty hard. You know, I mean. I think that sounds fantastic. I love me a good, you know. So yeah, take your <laughs> true crime skills and do a little scientific sleuthing. I totally will, and then I'll use that to discuss our next true crime episode. Uh, <laughs> so, so we teach the four levels of reflective listening in the first day of Prison of Beast, the first eight-hour workshop, and then foundationally from there, the they go they go on they go on to get the rest of the training and we ended up starting in the largest most violent women's prison in the world which at that time was valley state prison for women in chowchilla california and then uh we were there for three years they the state shut that prison down and turned it into a men's prison and we were asked to come back to the prison as a men's prison and teach the men and we weren't getting paid and we said no 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 finally we said oh what the heck we'll do it and we did it. And so we worked in that prison for three years, again, without pay. Mm. And that's one of our strongest programs. The men were amazing. Men are so, men's prisons are a lot easier to work in than women's prisons. I, it's funny, but I-, I, I There's a reason for yeah. that. It's not, yeah. it's not a sexist remark. Um, First of all, I don't, I think you, I mean, a sexist remark is like, women aren't as good as men. You have to really push that line for me. I'm very open to factual information. Here's, here's, here's why. <laughs> Yeah, the men's prisons, whatever kind of prison you go into, it's it's a fairly homogenous population in the sense that the crimes they committed, the, the what they're doing in those prisons, the time they're serving across the pot, even though the, the population will be very diverse ethnically and age group, from a from a crime perspective, they're all pretty similar. In maximum security prisons, you got the gangbangers, you got the murderers, you got the people, the really bad people. In the level three, they're pretty bad. Level two, not bad at all. Level one, it's like kindergarten. All right, so we have 40, I lost count of how many prisons, but let's just say we've got 45 men's prisons and only two women's prisons. Amongst the 45 men's prisons, the department can put people in the squares and the circles where they belong. And when you walk into a prison environment, the population is gonna be pretty uniform. You walk into one of the two women's prisons and you could have, you could have a, you know, a baby killer bunking with a woman who's in prison for three strikes because she's, she got convicted three times for stealing Twinkies to feed her kids because she was in poverty. Why it's is- Radically different. Yeah, why is that? Why are there such different- Because the, there's not enough, one, there is not enough, a female, the female population, incarcerated population is not large enough to segregate 
and there are only two prisons. Right. So say you've got 10,000, 8,000 women who are incarcerated at any one time, you can only divide them between two facilities and you can't separate them out. So that means when you do a class, you don't know what you're going to get. You're going to get, you can, you get, you get women, all different kinds of ethnicities and age groups and educational levels and mental functioning. And they're all, they're all different. You, I mean, some of the, the, some of them are horrible stories, but they are become, they don't, because of the way the, they're, they're not set up, they don't, they don't self-regulate as a community as well as the men do. But so the women's prisons, because there's only two of them, they don't separate into violent and non-violent offenders? No. They do in New York. Yeah, well, they don't in California. Yeah, I believe you, trust me, but I can imagine that is very frightening for the Twinkie so, woman. So, so, so it, just makes for, it just makes for a little bit more challenging environment. Not that they can't be taught, because they can, and they, they have turned out, we've turned out some amazing peacemakers. But it, we just, when we started teaching with the men, we didn't know what to expect. We were used to working with the women. And everybody was telling us, oh, you'll find the men to be a piece of cake. Not that the women were not that difficult once we got our feet wet and understood how to do it. And the men, but the men were easier. And so we started off and uh, we started with our first men's prison in 2013. And here we are in 2020, you know, just before the pan pandemic hit in March of, yeah, 2020. I think March of 2020 basically is when we shut down. Uh, we, were in, we were in 17 California prisons, uh, a prison in Connecticut and 15 prisons in Greece that a colleague wow. of ours is doing. And we have interest from all over the world. I mean, it's and a so great cool program, about, yeah. Well, the cool thing about the pandemic, I mean, you want to talk about blessings, is that the state allowed us to take the money that it had given us to run the programs, and, and now we're taking the entire curriculum, and we're, we filmed it. We spent, we spent all summer filming it, and now we're in post-production, we're in editing. And by the end of the year, we'll have the entire curriculum available online for any institution, anybody who wants to take prison of peace into any correctional institution anywhere in the world will be able to do it. That's fantastic. So yeah. we're hoping for a, a rapid, massive expansion of prison of peace because now it's cost effective. I mean, we'll, we'll train, we have to train facilitators. We have to train people how to use the material. We can do that via, via Zoom. Yeah. You know, before you'd have to fly one of us somewhere and that got, and you know, we charge for that and you should yes you don't come cheap and so it got it was prohibited but now you got a, a group of volunteers in a city with say a prisoner or a county jail or something like that and they want to do prison of peace we can we can train them how to do it train them how to use the curriculum and then they basically we've got the video lessons and the physical leaders just work through the manual i mean that's fantastic i love hearing happy things that Came out. Yeah, so that's one of the great blessings that came out of the pandemic, and and uh, so hopefully we'll see prison of peace expand over the next in the next year or two. Yeah, um, this is fascinating. Do you know when you're you know you're being post production and it's taking a lot longer than we thought. I mean, I, today I spent two hours. I had to do a voiceover of one of my segments, and you know, I mean, you know, we got. We're going to go back for pickups in September. Laurel forgot to tell me. She never told me the dates. And so, of course, I got those dates books. So I don't know what we're going to do. But uh, listen, still, it's a coming, yeah. though. It's exciting. Yeah, we got three more days of shooting. We're kind of, our editors are getting the rough cuts put together now so we can basically see what we have. And 
decide what do we got to re-record? What do we like? You know, is this making sense? It, 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 it's a full-on film crew that we've hired to do this. Costing us about a half million bucks. Wow. Uh, but they've done a fabulous job. Um, I have one more question. What oh. ever happened to Suzanne Russo who started this all? Why me now? Whatever happened to Sue? Sue Russo. Ugh. Oh, no. She's still in prison. She got she got clemency from the governor uh, a few years ago. The, the governor found that she was suitable for parole, and and reduced her crime, reduced her sentence from LWAP life without possibility of parole to just a life sentence. Yeah. She came up for parole hearing, and the board found her suitable for release, and she was going to be re released here to Central California. And it turns out that she has two daughters who hate her guts. And they rallied every Republican politician they could find in the region to pressure to pressure the governor not to approve the release. So he, the governor can reduce the sentence, and then they go to parole. And then once there's given a date, the governor has the opportunity to veto the release. So a huge amount of political pressure was put on the elected officials here locally and on the governor, and he denied her parole. Oh, I'm sorry, so, I was really hoping for a happy and story. The thing, the thing that's sad is she's in really poor health. And you know, it's costing probably costing the state a couple hundred thousand dollars a year at least in medical costs just to keep her going. So who I'm knows sorry. what happened. I sort of feel like your program would be helpful for her daughters. Yeah, they I know. We have a video uh, on YouTube called Pop POP Mediator Speak, which anybody who's listening now should take a look at it it's a yeah. 12 minute pop pop mediator speak and it 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 tells the story of prison of peace the first years and their interviews with our the first cadre of women that we taught and sue is in there and uh, if you I, I i don't know how many i think that, that video has seen 30 or 40 thousand views but if you look through those comments you'll find this the daughters made some pretty pretty mean and cruel statements that's awful. I'm. I mean, I'm going to look through it because I. I'm very, you know, curious and and. You're a sleuth. You're a crime sleuth. I'm a crime sleuth in my in my mind. So, um, thank you, Doug. This is fascinating, and now you've given me a new rabbit hole of neuroscience and free will to go down. Right. If you want to take a look at the stuff on ethic labeling, uh, you can Google Lieberman putting feeling into words. That's the that's the core study. And then his graduate students have done about 20 other studies that follow on on that. And there've been, a, there are about 20 studies now that are fleshing out all of this. So, this is fantastic. I really appreciate it. You bet. Thanks for listening to the Neurotic Nourishment Podcast. If you like what you hear, Please be sure to rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, shout from rooftops, smoke signals, hot air balloons, whatever. I'll take any of it. Uh, and if you really like what you're listening, why don't you become a patron? Join our Patreon. Visit us at patreon.com backslash neurotic nourishment. Thanks. Thanks.